I was just in a place of um, depression almost because I was so active in my work life, firing on all cylinders that I was like, why when I'm at home, can't I apply myself the way I am in my restaurant? Why can't I clean my whole apartment and like mow the lawn and do a whole thing? the way I could take care of this restaurant. What is the gap there? I was yes chef all the time, no matter what. If Even if when I sucked, I mean, I, I didn't just become a chef and know what I was doing. I was a bad cook for a long time, but I got good, you know, and I was a good leader. Some of the, the cooks that worked for me were better cooks than I was, but I was a better leader. And I was just learning that over time, I was trying just so hard to be the best leader, the best chef in the world, the most innovative, the most creative. And I was trying to check off way too many boxes when, not to be cheesy, but like who I was was unique enough. Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Rivodio, and yes, I did crumble like a delicate cannoli shell and start a Threads account. The only cannoli I want to talk about today, however, are the ones being served by Carmi Berzato. That's right, dear listener, today's episode is all about the bear. We're joined by culinary producer Courtney Storer to break down the behind the scenes of season two, which is now airing on Hulu. Courtney is a Los Angeles-based chef whose many credentials include running the kitchen at the iconic John and Vinny's. Courtney is, in a nutshell, one of the main reasons why the bear feels like such an accurate representation of restaurant life and why it's resonated with so many inside and out of the industry. We talk about her experience working with actors to ensure they're moving around the kitchen believably, how important it was to her to do right by Chicago's legendary culinary scene, and why so many chefs have no problem taking care of others, but have a really tough time taking care of themselves. Personally, I walked away from the conversation inspired and, frankly, awestruck by the love, passion, and care Courtney and the rest of the team pour into the bear, and I'm already counting down the days to season three. In part two, we're joined by the LA Food Pod's favorite jagoff, Father Saul. We give our overall takes on season two and discuss things like who gave the best performance, which episode made us cry the most, and is Rick Bayless an idiot for saying the show set the industry back 20 years? Spoiler alert, the answer is yes. In part three, we let our creative juices flow and pitch our best ideas for how we think the bear should open season three, episode one. Did I pretty much write a whole episode out of excitement? You bet your ass I did. Dear listener, if you're afraid of spoilers, I recommend listening to part one with Courtney and saving the rest of the pod for after you've seen the show. But also, The Bear has been out for several weeks and it's the best show on TV. So if you haven't seen it, that's kind of on you, lizard. Without further ado, let's chow down. I know I always say how excited I am to welcome our guests to the podcast, but today I'm truly like a kid at the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Our guest today is the culinary producer of The Bear, which is not just the best food show on TV right now, it's the best show, period. She's also the former CDC and culinary director of John and Finney's and a veteran of other acclaimed kitchens ranging from Animal on Fairfax to Verjou in Paris. It's Courtney Storer, ladies and gentlemen. Courtney, how are you doing today? <laughs> And the crowd goes wild. <laughs> yeah. In true Chicago fashion, you know, I want to give you an yes. MJ welcome. Okay, so we got Luke, Luca Servodio. Are you, yeah. you must be Italian. 
I am. You got the, am. You got the Italian name. <laughs> yeah, I've had my fair share of the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Although, you know what's so funny is I understand it's mostly an Italian-American thing, and I grew up in Italy, so my family what? always like roasts me now for having the Feast of the Seven Fishes, but I, I love the tradition. Oh my God, that's that's adorable. And I and I bet that that makes a lot of sense because every time I go to Italy, I'm like expecting these things, these traditions, like, and they're just not there. And and Seven Fishes is one of them that people are like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> we have fishes. Don't get me wrong. Every Christmas Eve is fishes. It's just not seven of them, you know? Exactly. Exactly. This is a the the seven fishes question is is not just unique to the bear. This is like something that a lot of people have wondered, I'm sure, over the years. Yeah, I absolutely loved it when Pete brings the tuna casserole and they're like, "We already have seven fish. What are you doing? Are you insane?" <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, it's it's real. What are your LA stomping grounds, Courtney? Oh, in terms of food, well, so I'm an East Sider now. Um, after living, you know, around Fairfax for forever, uh, where John and Vinny's um, is, and I, you can catch me a lot of time um, in Altadena. I have a little spot over here called Yang's Kitchen that I absolutely love. Um, on Figueroa, I'm always at Go Get 'Em Tiger. Are you are you talking food, right? I'm talking food, but where you like to hang out? I'm also <laughs> an East Sider, so. Yeah, um, my friend Ari just opened his restaurant um, on York, and um, what is that? What is that area? Eagle Rock. Oh, is that, yeah. So oh, the Eagle Queen Rock Street. Highway Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the, that's awesome. I live. We live in that neck of the woods, so we're extremely excited for that one. Oh my gosh, me too. Me too. I mean, anything he does is delicious. So I'm excited about that. But I've really been exploring uh, the area over here because it's been kind of refreshing um, living east. I've, I've never lived this way before. So it's nice. Welcome to the best part of Los Angeles, if I may <laughs> say so myself. Um, we're, we're glad to have you. Yeah, yeah. We, we throw a lot of shade at the west side on this podcast. It's, it's, <laughs> it's loving. Don't get me wrong. Um, totally. Let's break down the title culinary producer because I don't mm-hmm. think it's a lot of things that uh, our our listeners may have heard before. So sure. on a show like The Bear, what falls under that title? So it's it's more expansive than, you know, just food styling. It works a lot with all the departments of the show from production, writing, um, to set decoration and design, um, concept design, menu design, um, prop. Uh, placement, prop choices, um, and also working directly with the actors. So that's something that's a little bit unique to culinary producer is that there's a good amount of choreography. There's a good amount of movement in the show. And um, not only do the actors have to go in and memorize their lines and the all the feeling and what they're trying to convey, but then we're also having them cook. So being a support to them is really important. It's a big part of my job. And it's also kind of being a liaison to all the locations that we work with in Chicago, um, communication amongst those chefs on what our needs might be. I mean, there is no way that you can make a show like The Bear without a big community and team behind you. So I kind of like to be um, kind of an extension of The Bear in in the community in Chicago to kind of say, Hey, like I know the best person who makes the most delicious pierogies. Like we got to go through and, and try those for, um, 
when, when Sydney tries all the food in Chicago or like, this is the best pasta maker here. This is the best um, dumpling spot that opened. This is where a chef goes on his day, his or her day off or, or their day off. Um, so it's, it's a lot of things and it's kind of engaging with the, um, the team and, and letting them know if things feel accurate, if movements are right. I mean, you know, Maddie and I, um, who is uh, not only an exec producer on the show, but also acting in the show. I mean, we work very closely to be like, is this the direction? Like, can I shape this this way? Or can we talk to the writers about this? You know, I, I do feel like I always have an ally um, at all times to kind of lean on. It's a job that involves a lot of communication and organization and just kind of making it all seamlessly kind of come together using all the departments. Yeah, this sounds like there's probably never a dull day. No, definitely not. Um, it does feel like a restaurant in that way. And, yeah. you know, utilizing a team and um, helping everybody understand this world because everyone has incredibly amazing ideas. These are, these individuals that make this show are in, incredible at what they do. So it's just about, hey, this creativity that you have, what if we took it a little bit more here? What if you looked at this product or, or this kind of design or this shape of the kitchen, kind of just pulling it all together? I feel like I'm really shaping things daily um, and, and looking at anything from like the calendar Mm -hmm. on camera that you see like what would it look like when you're opening a restaurant what kind of things are getting done and and all those little details to the big ones and i think it's those little details that make everything feel so real like on that calendar you just mentioned there's like yeah there's the dates it says family family uh fam what's it called friends and family right it says that but then there's also little things that say like oh fuck or shit or like you know like, like yes. you know like all those little things that are like making up the universe in which they are and make it feel real, right? Definitely. And having a sense of, sense of humor at that, yeah. right? So like kitchens are difficult, but they're also so wonderful. And you have this team of people that does become like a family and you razz each other a lot of times and you try to make each other laugh. And, and when it's tough, like sometimes there's comedic relief. So we really wanted to develop that those relationships have been longstanding and, and visible in ways that um, are present and not just the dialogue you see between these people. Yeah, that makes sense. So your brother, Christopher Storer, wrote and created the show. When did he first bring you this idea and what did you say? Well, I think Chris is very, very talented. Anytime he tells me what he's written, I'm blown away because, I mean, we have, we've only just seen just the beginning of the things that he can do, um, which is really exciting for him because I think he's been very patient and driven and devoted to his love for TV and, and movie making. So it's kind of cool to see that The Bear was his first like solo, you know, big project with his name on it um, and obviously the team. But um, he had been working on The Bear. It wasn't called The Bear many, many years ago because, you know, the beef is Mr. Beef is a real restaurant in Chicago and um, a big shout out to the Zucchero family that we grew up with. And I worked for them for a long time. And um, I knew that it inspired him to write something that was shaped around uh, a Mortal Kombat tournament that was going to be at the restaurant. And the restaurant was having all these difficulties. But I think it really took shape as he did a lot more work with like um, Thomas Keller. Like he was shooting videos for a lot of these amazing chefs and spending a lot of time with chefs. I'm a chef. 
his closest friends are chefs. So he knows this world peripherally and and very intimately, obviously, through my experience, because I, I lived with him for a long time when I was coming up. So he could see th- a different perspective into this world of um, the hardship, too, like the the sadness. And so I think think for a while he was kind of like finding these characters and um, bringing them to life. And in the pandemic, it's really when it when it picked up steam. Mm-hmm. And when you yeah. first heard of heard the project and were like integrated into it all coming together, were there things that you picked up on as, you know, hey, that wouldn't really work that way or this was inaccurate or this might this might need to be a little different. What, what were some of those? Yeah, well, I think season one, um, you know, when you see that episode seven with all the tickets and the chaos, um, it's it's even like um, Sydney and Carmi's back and forth of like, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. And like the flex that Carmi takes, like being able to explain that, like I spent a lot of time with Io um, before we filmed just to talk about, you know, what it was like coming up as a chef and being like, I know that I can implement amazing strategies or help this kitchen culture, but I didn't always know all of it. You know, like I always was like, I got this, I can do all of it. And that kind of conflict that you see between Carmi and Sydney is a very relatable thing when Carmi actually does, is the one who's probably more likely to take the reins. And he's like, there's just a limitation where he's like, you're coming up and I'm trying to let you lead this kitchen, but you're not there yet. And there's some conflict always that you feel as a chef as you're trying to learn your voice, where at the end of the day, sometimes you're like, I got it, but you you might not. So like talking about those dynamics, I think are really important in how you respond to them. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that you can't always just walk away and be like, I'm out of here. Like sometimes you have those moments and then you have to work eight hours more together and then show up the next day. So I talked to them a lot about what that's like and what it's like to lead people when you're new, like Sydney coming in and um, Tina, uh, who's played by the incredible Liza Colonzeas, you know, that kind of ice icing her out, kind of being like, I'm not going to listen to you. You're not my chef. Like, don't come in here telling me what to do. Like I've been through all those things. So, um, there were moments where I was just like, this would feel really shitty or <laughs> part of my French, but it would feel no, really bad, whatever you want, yeah. <laughs> but it would feel, it would feel really bad. And, um, how would you react as a chef? Like when you're having a bad day. So, um, at, at a lot of moments while we were filming, you know, Maddie or myself, we could really step in and say, hold on, like this wouldn't happen or this would be labeled that way, but, but it's bigger. It's like, move the pan this way, hold the towel like that, put your towel here. It was like, we were watching drink from a deli, get that coffee cup out of here. Like we were like, you know, trying to act the way we would and it, and it worked and it paid off, but there's still so much about this world. That's hard to totally convey. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's such a multifaceted world and not to mention all of the experiences that lead someone to go to the kitchen. And, you know, in preparing for this podcast, I listened to some of your backstory and I noticed I picked up on little things that maybe uh, were from your personal story, like the UPS mention and whatnot. Um, (laughs) I believe you worked there before you took the plunge into the crazy culinary world too. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Like I always tell everybody about my journey into food is like every job has mattered and a lot of them weren't in food. So, you know, at UPS, it got me closer to food because I had a clientele at at a certain point. I went into sales and I was working with all these like um, distributors and restaurateurs and um, 
even when I was trying to escape or not even escape from restaurants, but I was like, I can't make enough money to support myself. I found my way back into them. And I'm so grateful for my time at UPS because it made me really have a good insight into, you know, logistics, operations, Mm -hmm. systemization. Like if you can get people to work in a 24 hour operation, you can get somebody to work in a kitchen, right? It's just like how you lead them. Um, positive reinforcement, learning and development, all of these things were were ways that I approached all of those lessons in kitchens because I just brought them into those places, you know, being a good leader, being able to try to uh, motivate my team and have an environment that felt literally like a a sports team helped Mm -hmm. me kind of feeling like a coach. So, so yeah, a lot of it made it to uh, some of the storylines in the bear. Yeah, it's really it's really cool to see. And you know, speaking of of IO and all of the work that went into preparing these actors to come across as legit chefs, right? Are there any stories that really jump out to you in terms of like when they were doing the work, when they were putting in putting in the hours, chopping mm-hmm. onions or whatever? Yeah, I mean, um Lionel and I spent a lot of time this season for season two to prepare on um, the skill set he was going to need for not only the Copenhagen episode, right? You see him do some canelling, you see him plating dishes, you see him doing some dough work. We we had to really put in some some time to to practice those techniques, to work on his posture, to work on he, how he carried things, his pace, um, his urgency in the kitchen. And um, I also, you know, prior to shooting, talked to the actors a lot about what they would make. You know, I wanted mm. to know with Lionel who he thought Marcus would be and, and what Marcus might make. And he had incredible insight into Marcus's world. And it helped me a lot create, you know, um, what we ended on with, with the cannoli and the Copenhagen Sunday and the Zeppelin donut with the cherry, like the fermented cherry and cherry powder. And then the honey bun, which was something that he thought of is a dessert that he exchanged with his mom. Um, and so we made a finessed one for people to take home at the end of the night. Um, and Lionel did the work. Like we would be rolling out dough. We'd be shaping donuts, frying them. Like he, he learned a lot. We made a ton of focaccia, a ton of different kinds of doughs. Another thing that stood out was Io making the omelet for the first time at my house. I, I have a That's catering a cool kitchen. Thing. Yeah. And she just did it. She did it the first time. And I was like, man, you're making me look bad. (laughs) (laughs) But she is a natural talent. And and I would say about Io is that she's incredibly courageous. Like she has, she just goes for it. And I'm like, man, that's pretty sick. That omelet was one of the more like mouthwatering moments for me of the entire season. It's a good one, huh? Oh my God. With the crumpling Mm -hmm. of the chips on top. That one really hit. Yeah, it hits for sure. Yeah. And something you just mentioned about ideating the dishes, one of the really cool parts of season two was seeing the menu of the concept, the bear come together and seeing all of Carmi's incredible drawings and whatnot. Is that something that you did as well? Like draw out dishes like that? Well, yeah, we pulled, we had an illustrator, an incredible illustrator in Chicago actually make those. Um, but I pulled from private images that I had collected in, in my travels or dishes that I had made um, to have them kind of illustrate. Um, we took a lot of inspiration from, you know, what we thought Carmi would be dreaming up, you know, like the perfect duck prosciutto, like cut really nice and 
simply laid on a plate. Like we wanted to show the Italian beef um, in a way that was elevated and also incorporated some of the things that were happening in the storyline, like the seven fishes, um, the grapes and the smoked bone marrow that we talked about with um, Io and Carmi when they're just dreaming things up. You see the like saffron in that dish when it's uh, when they're plating and it looks crazy. So there's a lot of storytelling that I try to take into consideration. And I'm a big visual person, so I make a lot of mood boards. I have to do something. Mm-hmm. I have to show people those because they're really beautiful. But throughout the show, we had a lot of mood boards where it was like, this is everything that we're doing season two and where we want to go to like connect it all. So that's a big yeah. part of it is making it make sense for the bare menu. Um so it feels collaborative and like it connects to what they've been working on. Oh, and I think you guys nail that on the head. And mood boards are kind of everywhere. You see like yeah. their mood boards when they're dreaming up what the restaurant yeah. should look mm-hmm. like too, right? It's kind of like a recurring theme. Speaking of mood board though, one of the like moods that you guys really evoke really well in season two was Chicago. Like it told mm-hmm. such a story of the Chicago food scene. Like we got mm-hmm. to see so many different restaurants and everything. You are obviously you're you're from Chicago. What was it like to be able to show off Chicago's food scene? What did you hope to accomplish by doing that? I mean, it was um it was incredible because obviously Chicago is my hometown and I adore it. It also is where I learned a the most about hospitality, you know, coming up and working for so many family-owned Italian restaurants. You know, I worked for Giuseppe Tintori, who had a restaurant called GT Fish and Oyster, and has gone on to open a lot of different restaurants. Um, But I have so much respect for hospitality because it's like where I first fell in love with it. It was like the first um, insight I had into, you know, what a major D did or a host or like someone welcoming you into the space. And um, hospitality is just as much felt in the internal customers, the people that work with each other, as it is as the external, the people coming in, eating. You know, I loved going into my favorite Italian deli because they remembered my name and they like always remembered the sandwich that I want or the pastry. And that kind of tangible feeling is something that served me really well as a chef. And as a professional, I always tried to be hospitable. And I learned that in Chicago. And I think Chicago is an incredibly beautiful city with wonderful people and um, has has some really special things about it. So there's no accident there about Chris deciding to work with the amazing team and, and really look at all the incredible architecture, you know, the river turning green around St. Patrick's Day or the traditions and the community that um, comes together for these holidays. It's it's pretty special and it's something I miss sometimes in LA. Um, and so it, it was really great to go back and um, take a walk on the lakeshore or go get a hot dog. Like I, I, I really love all those things still. Yeah. It's, I mean, what a cool way to be able to like share them with the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of does raise the question, like what would a show like this in LA look like? It would look mm-hmm. really different, right? Yeah, but you have some of the most enriched communities and food here. I haven't 
eaten. I, I some of the things I've had in LA, I never knew existed until I came out here. And um, I think there's a very diverse food community in Los Angeles that is incredible. So I think it would be an introduction to a lot of different kinds of cuisine and a lot of different pockets of Los Angeles being such an expansive big city. There's endless amounts of good food here. I continue to discover it. So um, I think it has all the potential to, <laughs> to be a good food show. Just don't know what the plot would be. Maybe the Bear Crew comes out to LA. <laughs> yeah, they open a uh, second location on Fairfax, oh, right? Yeah. yeah, there, there you, you go. go. There you go. Uh, well, I think a lot of people's favorite episode of this season, of season two, was Fishes, episode six. It was the epic episode with all the amazing guest stars. First, I got to ask, what was it like to be on set that day with all, you know, with Bob Odenkirk and Jamie Lee Curtis, you know? Well, it was super surreal. I, I, I was blown away at how excited everyone was to be there, the excitement that you felt. And then also the reality that this was a pretty intense, serious episode. So there was kind of like this excitement matched with this intense emotional excitement, but fear <laughs> a yeah. little bit. Um, working with Jamie was amazing. Like um, she is just a force and I just was like, whoa, like seeing her. But I also was so busy creating the chaos in that kitchen. We had, um, and I had such an amazing culinary team that day, but it was like, I needed bronzinos, you know, potatoes, rapini. I was doing all these meatballs and red sauce and sauce. it was just like food everywhere. And Jamie was such a good sport. And I was like, we're not doing ribs, we're doing this. And so like the script was changing because I was changing the menu and Chris and I were putting some fun stuff in the mix. So it was chaotic, but, um, you know, I remembered with season one um, just how much the smell of the food adds to the environment. And um, I wanted things to smell really good. So I made everything from scratch and we brought in some really beautiful food um, and some pastries uh, to complement all of that. So it was a fully stocked kitchen and the crew was taking nibbles all day. That's the thing. On the bear, everybody's nibbling. So everything yeah. needs to taste really good. Otherwise, um, I'll hear about it. So it's a great <laughs> exercise in catering because I'm constantly like doing this large volume format foods. But um, as intense as Seven Fishes was, it really felt like art therapy to be able to just make a mess and, and go into an experience that has some complicated memories for me and, and make it a joyful thing was kind of cool. Yeah. I was going to ask, did you celebrate this? I'm assuming you did. Cause we talked about it at the start, but was seven fishes a part of your upbringing too? Um, version. I would say when I would, when, when the, when we would have those big seafood dinners, it, it was kind of seven fishes esque, but we never called it that similar to your family. It would just be like for Christmas, you would have like a, lobster crab or something really extravagant um and then obviously over the years like my family had a huge crazy blow up and so that stopped happening so you know i started cooking to kind of bring those um, memories back a little bit um so yeah it, we we stopped having the seven fishes for that reason because it kind of went crazy and um and then never really went back since. So it was tough to have that kind of memory, a reminder. Yeah. It was art, art therapy to use your words. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like how did the chaos in the the family and whatnot and in the memories even influence mm -hmm. how you like even set up the chaos in the kitchen, which I think was one of the most, like a lot, is, a lot has to be said about how 
awesome the restaurant scenes are in the bear, but the the kitchen scene in fishes was so special because it's something that everybody can relate to, not just if you're not just if you're in the restaurant industry. Like we've all been in like a, a crazy, yeah, a crazy like toxic relatives kitchen or something, right? Yeah. Like it we've all felt that. We've all felt like we're intruding in someone's space, like all that. Like what was that like to create that specific kitchen? Well, you know, I knew I was gonna bring um access to it and um make it feel really like really crowded. And then the action of Janie putting her hand in the butter onto the bread, just like cutting the steps, like instead of making it come from like a place that's controlled and thoughtful, it's coming from a place of forced chaos, passion, energy, frustration, underlying issues. It's like doing it for the wrong reasons, you mm -hmm. know, making all this just to prove a point um, versus doing it with intention, which I think is the biggest thing that Carmi's learning and Noma and he's in all these kitchens. He's learning about intention, taking care of his space, doing something really respectfully with honor and care. And then you go into his home environment where it's actually the opposite. The garbage isn't taken out. The sink isn't clean. You know, it's just like stacked, um, almost like a ticking time bomb, right? And um, Chris kept saying that, like, get the timers going off, get the timers going off. So we were constantly doing that because the timer, like that bell ringing in your ear mm -hmm. is kind of reminiscent of what these people are feeling inside is that volatility, yeah. that like um, volcano waiting to erupt. And, you know, I think I can speak to only my own experience, but in an Italian family, you know, and, and, this was hard is that it's like what's going on under the surface you you good because like deep down you don't look good or you're not acting good or you don't seem okay um and then the shame of guilt shame and guilt of like pushing someone to then erupt is like well we tried to keep everything okay until it's not but it was never okay you know yeah and so showing that in food is is hard but um her kind of putting things in out of the oven, pulling out, you know, the mess. Carmi's just like overwhelmed by it and just trying to like do his best to diffuse. He's like the the one trying to diffuse yeah. and sugar as well. And that was so well done because mm -hmm. I'm sure different cultures can relate to this too. But I think at least in my Italian family, it's not a culture of talking about stuff. It's a culture mm -hmm. of diffusing. It's a culture of not setting people off. It's a culture of, and, mm -hmm. and that was such, that like fine line was painted so well in that episode. And it, you, we all knew it was going to explode at some point. Right. But yeah. Yeah. We were, I was hoping the entire time. Don't, don't explode. Don't explode. Don't explode. And Same. So well. <laughs> And you know it well, and and that that's so amazing that you are you were able to connect. And I I hope that seeing that episode, you know, people feel maybe less alone, or that it it happens more than you think on holidays, but also birthdays, any sort of celebration of joy, or even a Tuesday Friday. night, yeah, right, exactly. Um, and that people aren't alone in those experiences, and 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 not alone in how they affect you later, right? It's like so many of these terrible memories I have in my brain happened 20 years ago and they're still there. Right. So it's like working yeah. through all that is a complicated process and affects our, all of our worlds, our work world, our personal world. And, um, so giving that backstory, I commend the writers and Chris for, and Joanna for like doing that. Yeah. And this kind of leads me to, 
the next point, which is really one of the themes that is so explored throughout the show, which is this balance between as chefs wanting to take care of other people, but never really being able to stop to take care of yourself. And, you know, you worked in some of the craziest kitchens in all of Los Angeles. I've mm-hmm. got to imagine that you know what that's like. So yeah. how how, you know, how important was it to you to really nail that message in this show? Well, I think it's hard to totally nail it because it's so complicated, right? So it's like, there's so many layers and how people um, experience a restaurant world. It's not the same for everyone. It's a big universe to tap into because everyone's different experience is central to, to themselves, right? So I can speak to mine being that like, When I was always arrows out, I was just really depleting my care for myself. My experience outside of the restaurant was very um, different because I'd be so tired and Mm -hmm. no amount of sleep would solve that. And it was like an adrenal tired, like I had nothing else left. And every car ride, I'd fall asleep. Every movie, I'd fall asleep. It's like I was just in a place of... um, depression almost because I was so active in my work life, firing on all cylinders that I was like, why when I'm at home, can't I apply myself the way I am in my restaurant? Why can't I clean my whole apartment and like mow the lawn and do a whole thing the way I could take care of this restaurant? What is the gap there? Mm -hmm. And um, filling up your fuel inside is bigger than work. It's like my issues didn't stem from just work. They stemmed from my childhood. (laughs) And like, you know, I carried them a lot that I was able to be environments where I had a really thick skin. And so I was yes chef all the time, no matter what, if even if when I sucked, I mean, I, I didn't just become a chef and know what I was doing. I was a bad cook for a long time, but I got good, you know, and I was a good leader. Some of the the cooks that worked for me were better cooks than I was, but I was a better leader. And I was just learning that over time, I was trying just so hard to be the best leader, the best chef in the world, the most innovative, the most creative. And I was trying to check off way too many boxes when not to be cheesy, but like who I was, was unique enough. Um, and that the cooking technique and stuff comes with time. You can't expect that you're going to do it all. Um, and to bring myself into it was is a gift, but I didn't really recognize that until I took a step back um, from restaurants. I really had to figure out what I wanted to do, who I am as a chef, what my perspective was. And that meant I had to really step away from working at this velocity where I had no time to even think about it. Because when you don't have space and time to take a breath, your your head is clogged with things that don't matter. You know, yeah. I was always like, I was always like, I have to be the best. I need to post on Instagram. I got to do this. I got to, I got to get people thinking about what I'm doing. And, and sometimes that's forcing it. It hits yeah. so hard. That message yeah. hits so hard. The one of mm-hmm. like wanting to always be this best version of yourself with these external eyes on you mm-hmm. instead of, and always thinking that what you have to offer isn't good enough. It's only good as how you measure up against someone else. And yes. you talk about it in the, sh- in the, in the show too, but I mean, it's such an important lesson. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's really true because there's only one you, there's only one you doing this kind of podcast and um, your questions are unique to all the different things I've been 
doing. And um, I think that's really something to remember is that uh, you just have to be enough for you. That's all that matters. If you start there, um, you can apply yourself a little bit more authentically. And it took me many, many years. I can't tell you how much sleep I lost over every bad family meal I I made for the crew, after every bad steak I seared, after every time I didn't know what a certain cut of a vegetable was and felt really stupid. You know how Lionel's over there with his phone on, in the Copenhagen episode? Yeah. I've done that so many times where I'm like, yeah, chef. And I walked to the bathroom and I'm like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And like being human is is part of being okay with asking questions. And I, I always try to tell anyone when they're looking for advice in cooking that ask as many questions and the right chefs will answer them. The ones that don't, you know, ask somebody else. If someone tells you they don't have time for you, ask somebody else or read about it or Google it. Um, But always try to answer the questions that pop up because you'll have a lot of them and you don't always have the right first person to answer. Courtney, I could talk to you about this stuff. (laughs) all day long. You are a true source of wisdom and a delight to speak to. Last question, where can, what's next for Courtney besides the bear? Yeah. So I have a business called Coco's to Go-Go. My nickname is Coco. Um, I can thank my brother, Chris, for that one. Um, And Coco's to Go-Go is something I started in the pandemic. Um, I'm launching an Italian ice that I'm going to be doing pop-ups in LA. So you have to come. Oh, hell yeah. Um, yeah, and we're going to do some fun activities. Some um, I have some stuff coming up uh, where I'm taking over a restaurant in Ojai at the end of August. And Wait, some, which one? Rory's Place. Oh, my God. I, I We just went to Ojai and ate all Did over the Did you go to place. Rory's? We, we didn't eat there, but we, <gasps> no. we went by. We got to go next time. But you I have, have to go. go. Oh, what an incredible culinary scene up there. Yeah, it's it's totally sweet and, and cool. And um, I'm so proud of my friends for doing such a beautiful restaurant out there. And so we'd like to do some fun collaborations. And I'm trying to do um, a little bit of traveling with Coco's to go-go and do some pop-up restaurants, which I love doing. And um, just having fun with food and exploring you know, that as I grow my business. That is so exciting. Well, baby steps, baby <laughs> steps, one day at a time, you know, to, yeah. uh, to borrow a motto. Where can people find you if they're looking for you? Um, I have an Instagram. It's at Courtney double underscore store. And then I'll have a website here in about a week and a half. So I will send everybody over there once it's ready of recipes and videos and some fun stuff. I can't wait. Coco's to go, go, everybody. Remember the name and go find Courtney on Instagram. And for the love of God, watch the bear. Courtney, thank you so much. Luca, thank you so, so much. And best of luck to you here anytime you need a a podcast guest. Thanks to Courtney Storer for joining us on the pod today. Now, welcoming back to the pod a man whose only culinary credentials include managing the queso station at Princeton, New Jersey's finest Qdoba, it's Father Saul. An actual qualification of mine. (laughs) I thought you were going to make something up, but you are looking at a proud three-month member of the, I don't even know if it's still there, Market Fair Qdoba right outside of Princeton. Hit it up, everybody. Do you guys call yourselves the Qdoba Club and spell club with a Q? Uh, we don't. We call ourselves the I Hate, Art, I hate My Life Crew. <laughs> <laughs>
uh, as we're serving <laughs> high, like bratty high schoolers their like lunch. Well, look, we're here today to talk about a topic deeply related to Chicago. And if I'm not mistaken, your recent globetrotting has taken you to the Windy City. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I was there not too long ago for a big Pakistani family wedding. It was a lot of fun, but I did get to spend some time inside the city. Big Chicago fan. I think I was texting you during the trip, like at least at least in the month of June's and <laughs> the months of June and July. And I will in fact be returning to Chicago in August to see some friends. So I'm looking forward to spending more time in the Windy City while it is not windy. Yeah, you'll have to do more eating there. Did you do any like special culinary excursions while you were there, or was it mostly wedding stuff? It was mostly wedding stuff this time, but certainly when I go back, I have a, I have a hit list. Rick Bayless was initially on it for reasons listeners will soon find out. He is now off. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about that, actually. Look, we are here today, as the listeners know who have been listening to the rest of this podcast, to discuss The Bear. Uh, Saul, have you finished season two? Finished season two. Finished season one, too, actually, just in the last month or so, because I hadn't wrapped that up. And then rolled right into season two. Let's cut right to the chase. What did you think? Uh, I think season two of The Bear was the best television show of the year. And I'm someone who, unlike you, watched Succession's uh, final season, which was, I think, the other big prestige show. I think it's my favorite season of television in a long, long time. Um, yeah, I fucking loved it. Better than Succession? Better than Succession. They're different kinds of shows and they have different setups. Actually, The Bear sort of reminds me of, I don't know if you watched Fleabag. But yeah. Fleabag was, a, yeah, the two seasons. I think The Bear thus far and The Bear will go longer than Fleabag did. The Fleabag season one was like really good and new, and but anxiety, it was like a feel-bad show. It was like anxiety was funny and it had like ups and downs, but like overall it was like bad vibes. And then season two was heartbreaking, but good vibes. And season two of The Bear was heartbreaking, but good vibes. And really like, I mean, it had even more highs, I think, than, than Playback Season 2. And I, and that kind of storytelling appealed more to me than what Succession did. And I think it's ultimately, I don't know. I don't know if it's fair to say more challenging, but I think it was more successful overall than what Succession did in its final season. Yeah. That's extremely validating as someone who has never seen even one episode of Succession. <laughs> I felt, I felt like saying The Bear is the best show on TV right now. But mm -hmm. I didn't actually feel qualified to say that because I hadn't seen what I assumed was the biggest other contender, which was Succession. But I know that you as someone who has been trying to get me to watch Succession for the better part of, what, four years now? Mm -hmm. I feel extremely now validated in saying The Bear is the best show on TV. Who are the other contenders? What, White Lotus? White Lotus. I actually heard someone say on a podcast that White Lotus would be, when White Lotus comes back, it'll be the best television show on tv and i was like no i don't think white lotus is even i don't think white lotus is close to succession let alone the bear and to be clear i think the bear and succession are kind of like side by side and it's kind of like a personality fit which one you kind of gravitate to more and i would ultimately gravitate towards the bear but i think aside from succession i can't think of a single other show what the last of us was big this year not even close i'd say yeah uh, as, especially as a piece of like original writing and original like content uh, creation but no it was awesome and i want to dive into like the details of, of um what what made it so validating for us i mean why do you think it's the best show on tv right now i think the combination of 
storytelling and setting and world building and character building is just something that hooked me in and drew me in in a way that I haven't felt in a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I know that I am particularly susceptible to this particular show because of my interest in the culinary world, right? So I had to sort of like step back and ask myself, is this just really latching on to me as someone who's very into food? But no, I from the 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 rumblings I've heard throughout social media and other podcasts and you know, perusing the internet, I think that this show taps into universal themes of family, grief, uh, mental health, uh, losing yourself in sort of like your compartmentalization of other issues in a way that just like really hits nerves. And yeah. it does so in a way that doesn't feel ham-handed. It does it in a way that doesn't feel contrived or forced. There were a couple moments during the show where I was like, during the season where I was like, the one pitfall I could see happening to this show in future seasons is the Ted Lassification of it. Hmm. Um, meaning like Ted Lasso first season, kind of a surprise hit, super feel good show, very emotional, tons of tear jerkers. And then it's sort of, that's all it became. It just became mm -hmm. emotion porn. I yeah. think there's a fine balance for the bear moving forward in order for it to not just be emotion porn. I'm not that worried that they'll actually cross that line, but yeah. if there's a pitfall, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree. I, I, I see where you're coming from with that. It's kind of like, do you ever watch Friday night lights? It's a similar thing too, where like, like football is almost a setting and a vehicle, but really the story is about what happens around the football team. This restaurant here is a setting and a vehicle, but really what matters is what happens around it. And in Friday Night Lights case, same thing is true of Ted Lasso, right? Um, but I think the writers of the bear are won't won't tip that balance, as you just said. And it's funny too. I was I was watching, I was remembering when we had a we had a little conversation about looking forward to the bear, and you said one thing you were looking for was more quiet moments. You were mm -hmm. like, they can't do visual anxiety consistently all the time. And they it's like they were listening, man. Like they nail and they nailed the balance between the anxiety of the restaurant, but also allowed the characters as a whole to breathe much more this season for us to be rewarded for the challenges and trials and anxiety and stress we had in season one with growth in season two, while also still having flaws and shortcomings that were totally heartbreaking as you were seeing them rise up too. I mean, you laid out a bunch of themes around family trauma and so on, but like ideas that resonate with me the most were ideas of purpose, finding mm -hmm. your place, finding what's meaningful to you, right? being having a having a a, a failure or, or uh, being in a, in a in a dark place in life and then finding a, a vehicle or a, a path by which you find your way out of it um that was really compelling to me and you see some characters what's so interesting is like some characters have found their way i think into a into daylight a little bit right while others who we might have thought had already others that we are are really core to the show might be getting into a darker place over time, mm -hmm. right? Um, Who really, are you referring really to, to specifically? So, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, we can spoil here, right? I mean, watching Richie, who was my least favorite character of the first season, find his, like, purpose and his meaning. The very first conversation he has on the show of the second season, episode of the second season is, what's my purpose? Where do I belong here? Him finding that. Dude, you know me. I nearly cried, like, 
three times that episode. That wow. doesn't happen. <laughs> that does not happen. It was it was so meaningful. Meanwhile, Carmi, who we see have an opportunity, we see him like able to sort of like he's like kind of reaching for that like that meaning beyond or or finding like the healthy balance and just lets it slip away at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, like difficult to really interesting to watch those trajectories and that fame and the scene in the final final episode where Carmi's stuck in the dark cold fridge. And yeah. Ricky's outside yelling, I love you, while they're like, while Carmi's like cursing him out. Oh, like, that got me. Awesome stuff. Awesome yeah. stuff. Feels like I've probably done that drunk, just like cursing you out <laughs> while you yell back, I love you to me. Oh, I was not yelling, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really true. The thing you hit on about the quiet moments stuck out to me too. I actually rewatched season one as well in preparation mm. for this pod. And I believe the opening scene in season one, unless I have extreme short-term memory problems, it's a very frenetic start. I think they're starting in the restaurant. It's super chaotic. Uh, It's dirty all over the place. It's grimy. It starts with that song from The Refuse, the one that's like, you know? And season two on the flip side starts with an extremely silent scene of Marcus with his mother who's on i believe life support or, or in really bad straits in the hospital yeah. and it's a it's a silent scene of it's silent yeah being with his mom and it's the the contrast between those two just couldn't be starker and it's not like there's no frenetic energy in season two there's tons of it but they really get that balance right and i think that's essential for I think landing the emotional punches they want to land. I actually, yeah. you know, rewatching season one, I think I only teared up once or twice. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because the pace and the tone of season one doesn't make that much room for that. And I think season two does in a very, very like artful way. So <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever seen you cry. So I'm a little bummed <laughs> out that I missed it, but we'll just have to watch season three together. Uh, absolutely would be down for that. And I, I was like shocked by the look. Cause the thing is I have to be surprised. Right. And what I was, what I was expecting walking into season two was anxiety, but not like heartbreak. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're exactly right. In fact, the first, what, what's cool too. And that what one of the kind of notable episodes of this season called fishes, right. Where we get a flashback into Carmi's family. I think we might be talking about that episode a little bit more in a second, uh, reminded me of is you were actually, in fact, incorrect about the first scene of season of season one. The first scene is a dream sequence with Carmi. Oh, right? yeah. And he's on the it's Chicago the bear, Bridge. Right? Yep. And the bear opens up. And I think what that refers to, if he's returning to Chicago, right? The place that he had escaped. He'd run from this family and he returns back. And this bear of whatever, like the, the trauma and anxiety of being there was released again in, in this dream, right? As he returned into the city, crossed the bridge in. Um and that I think was echoed and elaborated on in in that Fish's episode. Yeah, that's true. Man, I guess I do have short term memory loss problems. That <laughs> that is the opening of season one. You're right. And actually, that brings up another point that I real like noticed between seasons one and two is that there was a lot more like magical realism and dream sequences mm. in season one than in season two, which. Yeah. I think I appreciated that. I, I I don't think it was an unsuccessful like mechanism in season one, but I, I, I don't think it was always necessary. And certainly in season two, there was no, I, I didn't see any CGI bears. I don't remember <laughs> a single dream sequence. 
what they do in those moments is trying to trying to like illustrate a character's state of mind, right? And one yeah. thing I did think was really interesting and I loved in season two was a couple moments where they did the same thing, right? One is with Carmi to illustrate his anxiety, right? And his distractedness with Claire, his new girlfriend, right? Chopping, chopping, like he's like stressed out. You see the scene, he's like chopping in between like uh, scenes of like flashes of Claire, flash of the restaurant, flash of being yelled at in New York, flashes of Sydney, right? And like showing us his mental state. I thought that was effective. But my favorite thing they did, I don't know if you remember, I think it was episode three when Sydney goes out to try different restaurants, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And she begin, they show kind of like the brainstorming of a dish coming together in her mind as she's going through the city. And it's like flashes of like different ideas with these like tortellini and like a green sauce that looks beautiful in her mind and it's coming together as she gets different influences. And she goes to make it at home and it doesn't look anything like what's in her head, right? But just watching like that way of visually telling, uh, uh, visually telling the story of a brain, like of, of creativity right a creation happening in someone's mind i thought was so cool and really effective yeah and they did that a little bit in season one like when sydney is dreaming up the risotto with the braised short ribs or the octa yeah Yeah. i think she gets the idea for a cola braise in her sleep and oh i see yeah yeah you, you get like meat fizzy cola with ice in a glass like juxtapose quickly together and then she wakes up and writes it down in her journal so they do that a little bit in season one but i'm really glad they elaborated that on season two because and that's actually something that you know i imagine is kind of how a lot of dishes come together is just like little inspirations from all over that your brain kind of just like takes and weaves together into something cohesive it even reminded me of your conversation with diego argotti of uh, of the of the not of the of the concept that's permanently situated at button mash poltergeist <laughs> uh when he was describing his challenges as an artist of of uh when he was a drawing right what he had in his head he couldn't put on the paper right and it was a struggle and i think i can't remember if he said this exactly but basically with music he found he was able to do that more and i presume with cooking he's able to do that and that the skill set it takes to imagine something to have a picture in your mind of an idea and then have the the technique and the talent to translate it onto a on, onto a plate. Um, it really reminded me of that like snippet of your conversation. And yeah, I think it's also notable that Car- Carmen, I think a lot of chefs are like actually quite good at drawing or use yeah. drawing and visuals to, to illustrate ideas. And we see Carmi's really cool drawings of different dish ideas at this season as well. Really enjoyed those little, those little nuggets. They're artists, bro. Well, look, Let's get down to the nitty gritty. I want to hear what was your standout episode of season two. The standout episode um, was Forks, seasons uh, episode seven with Richie. Now, what's funny is you and several other f- friends I have who were watching The Bear were going crazy about episode six before I watched it, right? And I get why. And so I was really looking forward to episode six. It totally paid off, but it was Forks that really got me. It was watching Richie have the light go off. It was watching him underst- like find like meaning through service and also like fully. I mean, look, I get it's like it's a fan. It's fantastical, right? In a week, he goes to like becomes like a three Michelin star, like Major Deer, right? But doesn't matter. Like the the process of that character, who I really did hate in the first season, I was so annoyed <laughs> with. I'm, I'm someone who. I really appreciate, and I've t- <laughs> and I tell people this all the time. I'm like a LeBron guy over a Kobe guy, not in terms of like 
whatever historical meaning or blah 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 like skill set it's about the the way you engage with the team and i don't like it when individuals fuck with a team and are not on board and shit and fuck things up and or like use their talent inappropriately i like it when they enhance and richie went from like a kobe player to a lebron player and it was beautiful it was awesome it was so cool to look behind the scenes of a three michelin star restaurant and see how they work right and i'm guessing courtney and others had really interesting insights to inform that episode um yeah that was the one that hit for me that's that's all tearing up choking up watching that episode that's a very popular opinion i'm sure to have on an la podcast uh the lebron over kobe one actually <laughs> both both la players but still i have a feeling there will be a contingent of listeners that will be upset with that opinion <laughs> i agree man i was one of those people oh, that texted you about episode six fishes and was like holy you gotta watch this. This is next level, best episode of anything maybe I've ever seen, better than most movies I've ever seen. <laughs> so the whole concept of Fish is it's the only episode that happens in the past that doesn't happen in present day when they're opening the current iteration of the new restaurant, The Bear. And we get an incredible cast of guest stars. We've got John Mulaney. We've got Sarah Paulson. We've got Jamie Lee Curtis playing the mother. We've got my boy Bob Odenkirk uh, mm-hmm. coming in and putting oh, in a solid cameo. Amazing Odenkirk, yeah. Amazing Odenkirk, one of my favorite Odenkirks. Um, and then, of course, it's the most uh, we get of – your. who's the guy who plays Michael? Uh, John Bernthal. John Bernthal that everybody loves. And we get the most Bernthal that we get of the entire season in this episode too. It's an hour long. It's it's very much an epic episode. And it basically transpires all during one Christmas Eve during the Feast of the Seven Fishes. It's It's high art. That episode is high art. Certainly in the way that sort of the tension builds, the drama builds, the little vignettes of the characters sharing stories that really also inform uh, the present day story as well. It's extremely, extremely well done. And when you're watching it, you're like, this is the best episode of anything I've ever seen. And then Mm -hmm. you get forks. Yeah. And you're like, holy shit. I, I didn't think that fishes could be topped not only that they top it with the next episode i think all the reasons you stated for why it's the best episode are are on point it's just seeing this one dude's journey who i think has maybe the most transformative journey and the most transformative arc of any thus far yeah character definitely this season yeah and the moment where he is buzzing off of his like finding a purpose and driving in the car to taylor swift his daughter's favorite artist i that's where i cried man i was like that was fucking poetry man poetry um it it was beautiful and also like i don't don't know how to like what, what the full idea is behind this but you know, Richie is staging at this restaurant, Avec, I think, in Chicago, which is an actual uh, restaurant. Ever, 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 ever um, or ever, whatever. Um, and I think at the end of his stage, asked if he can work there, right? Like one of the one of the ideas is like this idea of getting out and escaping. This came up in Fishes, right? With the Sarah yeah. Paulson character telling Carmi, like, hey, look, this place is not good for you. It, it's with Michael being like, tell me like three things about Denmark. And Richie, even we learn in that episode of Fishes, is, is trying to leave the beef, right? He's trying to get out, and even in this moment of finding purpose, is still being like, "Hey, man, do you guys think you guys gonna hire? 
like trying to get and, and that was like a heartbreaking moment for me because even though he'd found that purpose his initial he, what he'd done is like in in this place of extreme order right this just shows you the chaos of the Brazado family and of this world they're in and the trauma and how loud it is and he goes to a quiet ordered place and mm-hmm. finds his purpose and you just, I, I mean, and look, the beauty of the show and like what you're excited to see in the show is Ken, Richie, and Carmi and Sydney create that kind of place together, right? In the bear uh, restaurant that they're opening. But you can see Richie being like, this is what's good for me, like being in this kind of environment. And by the last thing I'll say really quick on Forks is one of the things that messed with me on Fishes was all the guest actors. Mm. It, kind of like, it became like, yo, shit, that's Mulaney instead of, oh, I'm yeah. watching the bear, right? And they're the guest actors and the and the special guests are loud and like in your face and like the whole like the crux of the episode. And then in Forks, they just drop in a little Olivia Coleman, who's a fucking amazing yeah. actress, possibly the best actress alive. And speaking of fleabag, like <laughs> bring brings right over and just drop her in. Surprise, like quiet conversation with Richie. That's like so moving and interesting, right? And mm-hmm. I thought like that totally captured the balance between the two episodes a little bit as well. If you had to give the award for one standout performance by a regular cast member, mm. who would you give it to? By a regular cast member, I think I would actually give it to. Well, <laughs> one shout out to Maddie Matheson, who is a fucking chef and an yeah. amazing actor. Hilarious. So good. And also, hat tip to Carmi's actor. Um, whose name is like literally Jeremy Allen White, Jeremy Allen White. There it is. Who I think is somehow underrated in season two. He won, I think a golden globe or an Emmy for season one. So like he's recognized, but this wasn't much of a Carmi season. It wasn't just a Carmi season the way the first one was, but I still think he was like an incredible performance. Sydney is my number one. Uh, the, I think, I think the, the work that actor has to do is actually sort of the most diverse across mm-hmm. the season. She's friends with Marcus. She's growing into her own as a chef. She has her own episode that she needs to carry, right? Uh, she's building this level of, I mean, she's kind of heading down the, like some, in some ways the dark, anxious path. She's still hungry for the anxiety and like the trauma and rush of a kitchen the way Carmi's like, you don't want to go for a star, man. It's a curse. But she wants, like watching her balance all that stuff while being like funny and interesting and strong, like all that stuff is, is really cool to me. Um, I mean, so many people can get this award, but I think hers is a performance that versus like the Richies and and others doesn't get quite as much shine. And I want to want to give that give that hat tip. Yeah, I agree. Io Adabiri is the actress actor, <laughs> and definitely compared to season one too, I think the range that they had to show was was definitely upped a notch. Um, and yeah. it was really her it was a really with her cool. dad. Yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry, but like, yeah. yeah, those scenes as well, like, yeah. Relationship with her dad, uh, relationship to her mom and who had mm-hmm. who had passed away. And actually, I'm not sure we knew that in season one. I think it was a bit of a season two revelation. A lot going on for that character. I thought that was that was a really, you know, strong performance. I think it. this is really like a Sophie's choice in terms of picking <laughs> one that stands above the other. I think where it gets a little a little more easier to have a take is when we're looking at standout performance by a guest cast member. And there are a lot of different candidates here. But I want to take a moment to appreciate someone who has been getting a little bit of, 
I want to say shtick for her performance being a little mm. over the top. Yeah. And that's Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. I thought Jamie Lee Curtis was amazing. And some people didn't like the fact that she wasn't really reading Italian. Some people didn't thought that she was way too, you know, over the top with how she was doing it. I thought there was no other way that particular uh, character could have been played. Like, it's very clear that this person is the gravitational center of the family uh, at this point in time, especially now that Michael's left a bit of a vacuum. And it's it needed to be an over-the-top performance, in my opinion. And I thought she did such an amazing job of really having you on a knife's edge during her episode of Fishes. Like, they sort of created this environment where it was dangerous to speak to her. Like she could go off mm -hmm. at any single moment. And that came through the screen, man. I was afraid of her. Like yep. I loved her performance personally. Now I'm not an acting coach or an actor, but I, I, I would like to give some flowers to Miss Curtis. I thought she did an excellent job. I want to, I want to agree with you right here real quick. Cause I heard the same uh, commentary and I, uh, after I'd seen the episode and I didn't fully, I, I got where they were coming from, but I, it was not the feeling I had about it. A couple reasons. I thought Jamie Lee was an interesting casting because for the most part in her roles, she's like beloved. Right. And she's like yeah. a, the nice, cool mom. But the other time I see Jamie Lee Curtis, the most fucking new girl, my favorite show of all time, <laughs> where she plays just so that Chanel's mom. And this is like super sweet, whatever character. And this is like fucking bizarro version of Jamie Lee Curtis, who you want to like and who I think just because of who she is and her affect, like you feel for, you have like an empathy for. And to see her in Fishes be like, I, I agree, like scary. You were scared mm -hmm. of her, right? And then the payoff in the finale, right? And I think one of the reasons that Fishes Fish being so big worked is because then you see this other version of her in the finale, this scared, ashamed version um, who feels insecure in that they only cause hurt. You needed, I think, Fishes to be at that level of unhinged for then the finale moment, which shout out cry moment, like paid off. Yeah, to make sense, you needed that to be as nuclear as possible. And it got there. Like, yeah. I I think she delivered I think one of the standout performances of the entire season, I'm gonna say. Um, obviously there were a lot of contenders between guests and regular cast, but I, I agree, man. That last scene where she's talking to also, I gotta say, Pete, Pete had some range. This is the yeah. dude from the like fucking what is it, Geico commercial where they're trying to like uh where where there's the coach who tries to make sure that you're not like your parents, you know? Oh, is that does he play that guy? Yeah, yeah. He no, plays, he doesn't play that guy. No, does he? He, he plays, plays one, one of the parents. Of the, he's one of the guys, <laughs> the young homeowners who doesn't want to turn out like their parents. God, he's like at a shopping it. mall wearing like lame clothes or in an elevator trying not to talk to people and stuff and being like, ooh, Paris, when he sees right. like a parent. <laughs> like he goes from that to delivering a performance like that in the finale where he's so torn and he always is a character who does the right thing. And then mm -hmm. kind of like realizes like, I got to keep this from sugar in order to like maintain the peace here, basically yeah. like huge performance by Pete shout out. But I agree in order for that scene to land, you need Jamie Lee to be, to do exactly what she did. And to your point, it's always really interesting when you see a character who you've only ever seen do one thing, completely flip 
it's like if if Tom Hanks played a pedophile or something, right? It's right. like like, he, <laughs> like that is a that is a role I want to see Tom Hanks in, not that specifically, but <laughs> that's what makes for the most interesting television at times, and that's why mm-hmm. I, that that's where my award goes. Do you think there's another contender for you? Well, the only person I want to give a hat tip to, and he's more, he's kind of, in, he's, a, he's a recurring character, um, and I think he's fucking awesome, uh, Oliver Platt as Uncle Jimmy Cicero. Yeah. Is fucking pitch, he, you know, I've been, I've been doing this thing in my head where, you know, when people ask you who your favorite actor is, and I would always just like choose a name of like some guy in the last movie I saw, or I would say like Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I thought was cool, but honestly, who's I haven't seen a lot of his movies, but I just think he's a badass. I didn't really have a re- I was like, what's even my criteria for favorite actor? And I realized it's someone who comes onto the screen, and no matter what, I'm like, oh, I'm in. Like, yeah. you know what? Like, they're the characters they choose and the way they deliver their presence fucking hits every time. I think Oliver Platt is one of those dudes because yeah. Cicero, he is pitch perfect, but like. The way he plays, like he balances, like like supportive family, but not family. I think like uncle with a little bit of menace because he's very mm-hmm. clearly tied in with like the mob or some shit, right? And he has just the right amount of menace and support, and like he's good guy. But you're like, but I think he's actually like a little bit of a bad. Like he just fucking nails it every time. So hat tip to him as well. Um, but we could go on and on about performances here, so I'll I'll, I'll cut it off at that. Okay, dud performance, which is a tough one. Although there is one clear contender based on what I've seen in the media. Ooh, who who's X? I don't have one off top. The one character, it's more so the writing of the character that's gotten a lot of critique. It's Molly Gordon's character, Claire. I think that's bullshit. I think that's bullshit. Okay, defend defend Claire. I mean, Claire is play- Claire is first of all cast and then played perfectly. I think by that actress. I think I think the character is written ideally. I think her, I think the romance between her and Carmi is written really beautifully too. It's like Freck. It's not like you know exactly what's going to happen as soon as they meet, but the way they interact feels realer. And like you, you like as a viewer, you're like kind of like falling in love with the dynamic and relationship they have, right? And I think she does. She like plays it just right what i will say here's what i will say and this is not on the actors it's not the performance my one gripe my one dud of the season so to speak their breakup the way that came about where carmy's in the fridge doing a speech he thinks to tina and it turns out claire's the one listening and then leaves that to me was a little contrived like yeah. a little too contrived right and, and a little bit too and in a way like the the most annoying thing like plot point in the tv show is like a miscommunication that like didn't have to be a miscommunication like if you're in real life it could have gone it would have like if it was real people like they would have sorted out the right way so that that particular moment i knew we knew they were gonna i think (laughs) you wanted them to end up happy but you knew they weren't and that being the way it happened i think was a little off but not the performance not the actress and not the character as a whole the criticism that i've seen going around is that Claire felt to some folks like a bit of a regurgitation of some of those like manic pixie girls we've seen in in uh, in scripts past um, that don't have a ton of depth to them and just kind of say like speak in platitudes. And I've it's mostly been a criticism of the character as opposed to the way that uh, the actor portrayed the character, but I I just think. As happens sometimes, some of that criticism falls, 
you know, trickles down to the actor as well. Now, sure. I think that Claire was so deliberately written to be the polar opposite of Carmi's world and yeah. sort of all the negativity and all the shit and all the griminess that surrounds them every day that I don't, I don't view that as a, as a, as a shortcoming on the writing. I think that was a very intentional choice and I think it was really successful and people are just responding to that and don't know how to feel about it because they're so used to feeling like, you know, grimy when they're watching this show it stands out to such a degree so i what i'm trying to say is i think uh we're smarter than everybody else who watched <laughs> as usual yeah no and what's also interesting is that we actually don't get a ton of claire or claire and carmy together as a whole in this season not as much as you would think for the main for like the lead actor of a show and their love interest we get a little bit of the beginning we get that the scene where they go to the party and then it's pretty light from there and just like the mm -hmm. fucking brutal voicemail or whatever afterwards. And the thing, I don't know if people are missing this or what, but like one of the things that connects them is that Claire is a little fucked up too. What does she do? She works in a fucking ER. She's in mm -hmm. hospitality, right? And what did she do? She likes, she looks at a broken arm and can't look away and wants mm -hmm. to know how to fix it. She wants to get in the muck, just like Carmi wants to get in the muck in the kitchen. She's getting in the muck literally with like, like bleeding what? bodies and like fucked up Beaches. situations she's in yeah. the ambulance and shit right or she's the er and shit right so they they have a connection and they're looking for maybe i don't know again we didn't get so deep on claire that's that's correct and fine but we were also flushed out on like every like six other characters in the show but you could see that they'd found like an eden within each other from the worlds that they like these like high stress high anxiety worlds they created for themselves yeah i think that's right look i uh want to save time for part three because I'm very excited to share with you my outline for uh, what I think <laughs> should happen in season three, episode one. But first, we have to touch on something that uh, Chicago restaurateur and extremely famous restaurant guy Rick Bayless said when he was asked about the bear. And this comment carried some weight, not just because Rick is has a huge name in the industry, but also because he's kind of really closely associated with Chicago too. And his argument was basically that the show has set the industry back 20 years <laughs> because it depicts the kitchen in such a way that makes the career look, and these are not his words, I'm paraphrasing, but unstable, chaotic, dangerous, et cetera, and that it basically won't attract people to the profession. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think he's wrong. <laughs> I think he's like really wrong. I think I think Rick Mans maybe not watched season two quite yet. Uh, and by the way, look like what one of the things season one was renowned for was how accurately it portrayed kitchens. Yeah. Uh, so look, man, like sure we could we could also and by the way, it also portrays really healthy and balanced and like efficient kitchens. The whole scene. Oh my god, I almost forgot I was a guest actor. Fucking Will Poulter as Luca. Mm -hmm right like great what? name great, great name. name great episode the the support of marcus the person who like uh, he's such a fascinating character right and like so so no it doesn't just it hasn't set the fucking industry back 20 years i don't anything if anything it's still glorifying restaurants the bear loves restaurants the bear is making an argument that restaurants and the the service and detail and commitment that restaurants when done healthily 
um, uh, succeed is one way for people to heal themselves. Like it, it like loves the idea of the highest level dining and service. So no, he's wrong. Rick Bayless is a little bit corny. I will say I make some of his tomatillo arbol salsa fucking really good, even though he's the, <laughs> the, the white Mexican chef. And look, he, he, to be fair to him, he wasn't like, look, it's not bad TV. He just, he, he's saying from an industry perspective, portrayals that look dirty and chaotic and abusive are bad for the, are bad for the industry. Look, chefs have become celebrities in the last like 20 years, right? People like chefs, like a rock star, like seen to profession. People I think are really compelled by kitchens. We just seen season, season 20 of Top Chef. I think there's no, <laughs> no concern at all for portraying some realistic downsides or realistic dark sides of the profession as well, especially in a show that ultimately celebrates the industry. Yeah, he's trying to, it seems like his quest is to make the culinary profession like the legal profession or something like really yeah. buttoned up. And that's just, you got to be real, man. There's real constraints. And I think that the show does a really good job of calling out the shitty parts of the industry and glorifying when things are done right. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to limit the conversation to that because we got to move on to part three. But I think there's one word that sums up Rick Bayless, and that is Jagoff. Jagoff. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> All right, buddy. We'll take a break. We'll be back in part three. And we're back in part three. As promised, we're going to do something that I think constitutes us crossing the picket lines of the writer strike. We are going to give our specs, our outlines for what we think should happen in season three, episode one of The Bear. Saul, have you given this any thought? I've given it a little bit of thought. First of all, I do give a fuck about crossing the picket line, support writers. <laughs> <laughs> and then I do not think this qualifies as such. Uh, I've given it a little bit of thought. I'll be honest, I have no idea what a spec is. But I, uh, I, what I'm going to do, I, I take it it's some kind of outline for an episode. Yeah, so, yeah. To be clear, a, a spec is like writer talk for writing uh, an episode of a show that already exists. So, like, it's a writing exercise, mm -hmm. basically, where you take a show you like and you write an episode, and it's basically to show that you can write in the style of the show. So, uh, it that's that's all it is. It's jargon. Gotcha, gotcha, dude. I could probably write a spec script for New Girl like tomorrow and have it get put on air. I know that voice backwards and forwards. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so what I'll do, what I'll do is, what I'll say is this, I, I want to go off top here a little bit. I intentionally didn't think too much about it because I didn't, I wanted to like kind of let the creative juices flow, so to speak. And what I'm going to say is, what I'm going to do is tell you where I think the show should kick off in season three and what I would want to see um, in that first episode. One, I would like them to address the Claire Carmi breakup, but not until the end of the episode. I don't want to start off on that. Two, I want the restaurant and maybe the opening scene of the restaurant. The opening scene of season two should tell us a little bit about, immediately about where the bear stands in the restaurant. And what I believe they should do and what they will do is the bear is successful. I think they will have paid off Jimmy. I don't think that should be necessarily an ongoing or too much more of an ongoing like plot device. They need to pay off Jimmy Cicero. Um, but, but maybe it is. And it's more, but I think it'll be head just above one. It'll be, mm -hmm. we got, we're, we're like right on the edge. We're surviving, apparently, right? And that's the classic anxiety of the bear. And the way they need, I think the conceit in season three is the way they can establish themselves, they determine what they need to achieve is a star, right? Which, which they've teased. already talked about in season yep, two. They've teased season two, which is why I believe it'll come back around. 
and they'll say, look, we, we are barely surviving. We are on track to play. We, we are on track to pay Uncle Jimmy. But like if we're on a knife's edge and what we need is to achieve this level of notoriety and pursue X level of excellence before it happens. And I think that as the driving device of season three will begin to expose more of the cracks with Sydney, with Carmi. We'll be in the kind of like, they, they are the ones who are going to have to figure out a way to balance that commitment to excellence with something healthy. Um, I, I think that Carmi and Claire deserve a better, so I, I think Claire is, remains the end game for Carmi by the end of the show. Um, and I want to see how, like the next step of that. Um, yeah, I think, I think, I think like where, how Carmi recovers from his night in the refrigerator um and and how he begins to repair himself or maybe from one more season continue to descend right um will be will be interesting to watch and i I think that's kind of where season three should set us should set us up yeah surprised you didn't go with a kari me too scandal (laughs) i don't think there'd be one of those i don't think think that 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 tracks I uh so that was that was cute. I think we would call that more like a season three like Bible, right? Like you kind of gave sure, really yeah, yeah. It was less direction. of an episode and more more an arc, right? That's yeah. right. Oh, and also yeah. Richie's got to get with that um whatever the um expediter at, uh, ever that um, he was like kind of making eyes at. Yeah, I yeah. That oh, that's a too. good yes, yes. That that would be a good romantic interest for him. Um. Okay. Look, you went the more general route. I went. I'm going to go the hyper-specific route, okay? <laughs> go for I, it. I haven't given this a lot of thought at all, okay? So I'm just going to go <laughs> just going to go off the dome. Off the You've dome, been working okay? on this for a straight month. I can already tell. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, we open on a frantic scene at the ER. Gunshot victim being wheeled in. Ambulance person briefs Claire and team on what's going on. It's not good. What we witness is basically an energetic recreation of what life was like in the in, in the kitchen for Carmi. So it's the similar sort of like but in the ER, okay, for Claire. They lose the patient. It's not good. It's a bad start, right? Claire is decompressing in the bathroom and we see that she pops a pill. It's Xanax or something stronger. And the implication here is Perfect Claire isn't so perfect, okay, you critics? We're giving her a lot of demons in this season. She goes home. It's the end of her shift. It's super early in the morning before the sun has even come up. See, I've given this no thought. (laughs) We discover she lives with her mom, who's raised her as a single mother because her dad died when she was young. Claire's mom is asleep in front of the TV, and she has the morning shows on. And Carmi and Marcus are on with Ryan and Kelly demonstrating how to make a savory cannoli so basically you're painting that like the bear has become this massive success right she stands and watches the tv with a blank stare for longer than she should and she changes the channel and throws a blanket over her mom we got to show her doing something really like good right people gotta gotta be rooting for her claire awakes the sun is up. We see her routine. It's low energy and she seems depressed. We see her pop another pill. In the kitchen, she finds her mom staring blankly out the window. We discover her mom has early onset dementia and Claire is her caretaker. Claire makes her a cup of tea. Claire then collapses on her bed and scrolls through her phone. Annoying food, food bloggers like myself post TikToks about the bear. She, she lingers but quickly moves past them. It's clear that she can't escape this fucking place, right? An incoming call from Kelly, her best friend who we met in season two. Hey, bitch, this is the most alive we've seen Claire all episode. 
<laughs> they catch up. Kelly asks Claire about the guy she's now been seeing. Okay, so we get a hint. Claire's already moved on. It gives us a little bit of time, right? Or we think she's moved on. Next scene, moody Chicago bar that the culinary producer Courtney Storer has handpicked for vibes and status within the Windy City culinary canon. Claire <laughs> sips a beer across from her new beau, played by none other than Rami Youssef, who, by the way, directed the Copenhagen yeah. episode. Yeah. So we're going to give him a little bit of a, a cameo in this, ep- in this season. He's the opposite of Carmi, not in every way. He's also artsy and disheveledly handsome, but he's warmer. He's he has a clear grasp of self. He's more conventionally charming and and sort of outgoing than Carmi, and clearly cares for Claire. He mentions that his friend's birthday is coming up, and she's been dying to go to dun 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 the bear. Doesn't Claire know somebody there? Claire looks taken aback, but she says she'll look into it. An ER montage comprised of hospital beds moving quickly follows. We hear heart monitors beeping and flatlining, frantic operating room scenes, Claire popping pills. Once the montage is over, we see her in the locker room. A text. It's Rami. Any word on the bear? She locks her phone and pops another pill. We're at the train station. Claire's waiting for the train. She has her phone out and stares at the bear's number on the screen. The train comes. She gets on. She decides not to call. Back home, Claire enters the kitchen to find her mom at the table looking through old photo albums. The doctor says it could delay the dementia. They flick through photos and her (laughs) mom drops a touching and hyper-specific anecdote about her dad that's deeply related to precisely the situation Claire finds herself in now. Claire knows what she must do. On her porch, early morning and cold enough that we can see her breath, Claire calls the bear. Unexpectedly, we hear and recognize Carmi's voice pickup. Hello? Claire, taken aback, can't get a word out. The silence seems to last forever. Then Carmi goes, Claire? The sound of her own name is more than she can bear. And she hangs up the phone, bursting into tears. What the fuck is wrong with me? She asks herself. Back at the ER, Claire is pouring herself a mug of coffee when a loud, obnoxious, and familiar voice sounds out from the waiting room. She peeks her head in. It's back. She sees him. He's dislocated his shoulder, fixing some obscure piece of kitchen equipment that broke down. After she's popped his shoulder back in, they make small talk. He says she should come by and visit the restaurant sometimes. She thinks about asking Fack to help with a reservation for Rami and his friend group, but she decides not to. A sex scene with Rami, ooh, during their post- (laughs) (laughs) During their post-coital pillow talk, Claire mentions she wasn't able to get a res at the bear. Oh, well. Rami says, oh, I forgot to tell you. One of the other homies in the group was able to make it happen. We're going on Friday night. Claire reacts poorly to this news. There's some tension between them. She self-medicates after he leaves. Cut (laughs) to dinner at the bear. We're, we're, We're ramping towards the finale here. Cut to dinner at the bear. This is the first time we see the restaurant And we see it entirely from Claire, a.k.a. the diner's perspective. It's buzzing and operating on all cylinders. People wait at the bar to sit down. Diners are excited and happy. The dishes are flying out of the kitchen. The only time we see the kitchen is when the door swings open and we catch glimpses of Sydney and Tina. Claire is visibly nervous at dinner with her friends. She catches a glimpse of Fack across the dining room and she covers her face with a menu. She's not present and is even being borderline rude to Rami's friends. Rami picks up on her weird behavior and he's asking her why she's being so weird. She says she's fine, but it's clear she's not. In slow motion, we see Carmi exit the kitchen. Claire freezes. (laughs) He doesn't see her and heads back to the kitchen. 
but the moment is too much for Claire to handle, who must excuse herself to go to the bathroom. We see her take more pills as she looks into the mirror. The dinner continues. Amazing food hits the table. This is the first time we see the food in full effect. Rami's friends are raving about the food. Everyone is having a great time. Everyone except Claire. We see her drink. She's getting progressively drunker and mixed with the pills. It looks like she's losing her motor functions. In a climactic point of the dinner, the cannoli hit the table. One of the friends exclaims that Carmi is a genius. Claire laughs, spitting out wine onto one of Rami's friends. She proceeds to have a drunken, angry rant about how in her and how our obsession as a society to glorify genius, we overlook basic human decency. It's vitriolic. Wow. Politically incorrect, <laughs> extremely uncomfortable. She gets loud. She causes a scene. The entire dining room quiets down, and she's now blown her own cover as folks like Fack and Richie notice her presence. Richie tries to stop her. He calls her by name. This takes Rami aback, who doesn't know just how much her reputation precedes her at the bear. Claire volunteers to leave, but not before pouring her wine glass all over the table. In the alleyway, Claire pops another pill. She almost faints onto the wall. We hear someone call her name, but now she's fainted. A dream sequence. Claire is in the ER, but instead of all of her fellow doctors, she's surrounded by the Bears crew. They're trying to save a patient, but doing it the way a restaurant crew would. Everyone's calling each other chef. They keep saying they're in the weeds. They're losing the patient. We look down and the patient being operated on is Claire's mom. She wakes up in a hospital bed. Someone is holding her hand. It's Carmi. End. Wow. I didn't give this um, any thought, obviously. You know. <laughs> that was an impressive delivery. I, I tried as best as I could not to laugh throughout so that our listeners could enjoy the full experience. We'll put uh, background music to it. <laughs> that's a great idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> from the, the, bathroom, the, the background music from season uh, episode one of The Bear. I love that. Um, that was, let me just say this. If a spec is a representation of you capturing the voice and perspective of the show, I'm not sure you got that. <laughs> or am I? Or am I? I will say, I will say the, my favorite part. I think having an experience at the bear from the perspective of a diner is a great idea. I like that a lot, right? Because we're always kind of going back and forth to the kitchen in front of house. Or, I mean, to date is what we have. No, that's always what we've had, right? Whenever they're stressed out and stuff like that. So seeing it from a diner's perspective and seeing them work would be really interesting and seeing more of the food because I actually don't think we end up seeing a ton of food in the bear, which is kind of interesting. So I like yeah. that idea a lot. Um, what I will say, I, I, I have a bunch of questions, um, yeah, both, both about the idea and kind of like personally and mentally about your well-being. <laughs> um, uh, but, but I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. What I will say is I think the Claire episode as a whole, this is my one piece, my last thought on this. As a whole, I think a Claire-centric episode is a good idea for the show. I think it would be kind of late season three. Yeah, I think we first need to ground ourselves in our in our main characters. And I actually, I would bet you, it would be a great bet because season one we center on the first scene being Carvey. Season two, it's Marcus. Interestingly, mm -hmm. season three, my bet, Sydney. Yeah, although Marcus was a really left field choice. In terms so they, could of do, like, they could go left field. I mean, look, it could just as easily be Richie. Yeah. It could yeah. be someone totally random. Could, could be, be like Pete, the, right? Could be or sugar. Nat. Yeah, Pete or sugar delivering yeah. the baby or something, you know, like yeah. that. Oh, I forgot about the baby too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
No, I um, look, I I was really torn about this because after I spent way too much time not writing this outline, I uh, <laughs> realized this would never be the first episode of season three. Like this would this would probably come later on um, it, if they wanted to do a clear episode or reintroduce her in some way, shape or form. Um, it, I don't think this works as season three, episode one, but I had a ton of fun exploring the life of just one of the characters, right? That like that we don't know too much about. I think that's one of the it's things a, that this show does great, really well. Yeah, they, they do do that really well. And I do think they will do it to Claire, to, credit, to, to your credit. I do think at some point we will get a deeper look into her, her life. Um, it was a great little fan fiction, bro. I'm happy for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And not even as erotic as most fan fictions I write. So. Uh, I, I feel like you cut it off right before the weird sex scene. <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, there, there, it was coming. Yeah, the deleted scenes. Uh, the deleted scenes are definitely NSFW. Um, <laughs> Father Saul, any any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? No, I mean, look, I well, I think now that now that the bear has hit this level, because I think season one was good, but there's a reason I didn't finish it. By the way, I I watched the first six episodes of season one, and I was like, I think that. And look, I know a lot of people have had a different experience, but it wasn't quite at the level. And I think it's hit the level where when Bear Season 3 comes out, dude, we should fucking like, visit one another and binge that shit. And like, yeah. and like, really, like respond almost in real time. Pod reactions after each episode and stitch them all together or something. I think it's hit that level of notoriety as a piece of media. I think you're right. And I can be the shoulder that you can cry on during those episodes. <laughs> I'll need it, bro. I'll need it. Yeah. Yeah. Father Saul, thanks as always. You did a great job today. Just want you to know. Appreciate it, buddy. See you later, Jagoff. Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks to our guests, Courtney Storer and, of course, Father Saul. If you like what you heard, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a rating, a review, subscribe if you should be so inclined. And if you're looking for me, dear listener, you can find me on TikTok, Instagram, and now even threads at the LA Countdown. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N. You can also find us on Instagram at LA Food Pod. That's L-A-F-O-O-D-P-O-D.